Welcome to the Captivating Leadership Podcast with Rebecca Livesey, where we explore the rise of feminine energy in life, leadership and business. This podcast is for you if you are a leader in business and corporate and you're struggling to find meaning in what you do and how you engage your team. So join us as we talk all things leadership, strategy and culture and how we value both the feminine and the masculine in men, women and society at large to make a difference in our workplaces. In this podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Michael Eichholzer, who talks through his journey as what he describes as hyper-masculinity through his childhood and then his time in the service, and then what he does with that now, working through a charity called Men's Link in Canberra, where they go into schools and they run programs with young boys to understand how to talk about emotions, how to show vulnerability, how to live a life through our values, and the difference it makes to these young boys' life. And in my language, it would be how we access the feminine and bring both the masculine and feminine together in a beautiful functional way so please join me in welcoming Michael. Michael thank you so much for joining me on this podcast it's an absolute honor and I love your work so I can't wait for you to share everything that you do with our listeners so do you want to start off with telling us a bit about your journey and how you got into the work that you do? Uh, look absolutely firstly thanks for having me um, I really appreciate the opportunity I guess my journey as such started, you know, at a very young age, like most people. We came to Australia. We were immigrants. Uh, we came over from Europe, a pretty much um, standard family. It was mum, dad, uh, myself and my two sisters at that, at that stage. Um, I had two brothers that came along a little bit later. And dad brought the family, a very young family over here for a better opportunity. Now, dad was what I would call a very traditional male he came from the work hard, play hard school. I don't think he really was in tune with um, the softer skills in life. He, he was a very hard playing sort of guy. He was very much a disciplinarian. So I learned from a very young age that, you know, manhood was all about, um, as I said, hard work, hard play and hard discipline. Yeah. Um, now, that kind of really worked through my younger years. By the time I was 15, Dad had become a heavy drinker, a heavy gambler, and had become quite violent, um, unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you looked at it from the kid's point of view. I seemed to cop most of that. Um, I was the eldest, eldest son, and Dad had high expectations of me to, I think, meet these still stereotypical ideals of manhood. And often I failed to uh, meet those expectations. And Dad was pretty physical in uh, demonstrating his displeasure. So by the time I was 15, I had no self-esteem. Um, I had no self-confidence. And I was just pretty much waiting for, you know, when the next beating would come. And I got the opportunity when I was 14 to apply to join the Navy. We had a Navy recruiting team come to the school, went through the selection process. I got accepted and a couple of months shy of my 16th birthday, uh, they dropped me off at the train station in Rockhampton up there in Queensland. And I was, I was off to join the Navy, see the world. Now, the interesting thing was that was the only memory I have of dad ever showing any emotion. Mm. Uh, and that was, you know, he had a teary eye. Um, as we, we left the station and, and that kind of really confused me because I'd never heard any 
positive emotion from him until you know until I saw him at the at the train station as I left. So you joined the navy, and and what was that like at that time? So I thought I'd kind of um, escaped. Yeah. Um, this uh, I referred refer to it these days as a man trap. Um, yeah. I thought I'd escaped, but. I ended up over in HMAS Lewin in uh, Fremantle in West Australia in January of 1977 with a couple of hundred other 15, 16-year-old lads um, joining a place that had probably a 1,000 or more young fellows of that age going through various stages of Navy training. And the Navy that I joined was was a, a male Navy. Uh, females at that time joined the Women's Royal Australian Naval Service. And so it was a very much male-dominated and very much um, celebrated, if that's the right term, these traditional stereotypical aspects of of maleness, of manhood, and that was work hard, play hard, fight hard, judge yourself by the conquests that you had in the bedroom, all those sorts of things. And um, I I struggled with that um, because of this lack of confidence and this lack of self-esteem that I had. So I decided to, I guess, to address that or to, or to compensate for that by embarking on a path of hyper-masculinity. I, I got into the gym. I started to build myself up. I started to hide my emotions. Mm. I started to... Um, it wasn't a, it wasn't a huge fighter because I think apart from the fact I was building these barriers around me, I was still unsure of myself. So, it, you know, I wasn't one that was out um, uh, getting into fights all the time. But certainly, in terms of getting physically big, getting emotionally small, mm. uh, that's how I decided to protect myself. I guess the real challenge that this pursuit of being a real man presented to me was this inability to be true. Uh, with my emotions. I got married when I was 21. We had a, a child when I was 23. And by the time I was 25, I was divorced. Right. I loved my daughter at the time. And I say at the time, because what happened was my wife remarried very quickly after we got divorced. And within a year had sent me a, um, a letter asking if I would sign my daughter over for adoption. Right. And I told myself at that time, yep, Absolutely. I can do that. Um, it's in the best interest of my daughter. And as I've gotten older, I you know, had to reflect on that decision. I still believe that was part of the decision. But the other part of the decision was that I just didn't have the emotional capacity to be to be a dad. Yeah, um, I'd gotten so good at hiding these emotions at, at um, being or trying to be this rough, tough bloke that I, you know, I was prepared to give my daughter over to somebody who, who could bring her up as and be her father, which to my eternal gratitude, but also to her great benefit, um, he did. So 20s were, again, part of this ideal. I used to work as a bouncer in St Kilda during my time off because I had to prove myself, again, to be this rough-top bloke. I, I worked with people who um, were on the edge of criminality, Mm. Being accepted by those sorts of guys appealed to my sense again of of manhood. You know, if these rough blokes were accepting me, then I was part of their tribe, and that that meant something for my self esteem. Yeah. It wasn't until my early thirties um, when I met my wife Catherine 
that things really started to change for me because it was the first time in my life that I started to believe that I was actually worth something, that I was worth uh, being loved and cared for by someone. And that was through Catherine, the way that we interacted, but also her family, the way that they interacted. So tell us a little bit about your Navy experience. In 2003, I went to uh, Iraq for the first time, spent six months in Baghdad. You know, this is where I'm, I'm, a, I'm a warfighter now. I'm, I'm at war. I'm doing what men do. I'm carrying a weapon every day. Um, whilst I wasn't a frontline troop, we, you know, certainly contributing to the war and the threat of being attacked or hurt was there, um, although much less than obviously for the frontline troops. And one day we had a, an incident where a young fella who had introduced himself to me a couple of weeks previously, he was 22 years old. He was part of my extended team, the unit that I was working with. And he introduced himself to me and he explained that he was a, a new father. He was looking forward to going home soon to meet a daughter that he, he hadn't met yet because he'd been in country nearly 12 months. And two weeks later, he got killed in an attack on um, Abu Ghraib where we had this small outstation. And I went to a memorial for him that was, you know, held on the main base where we were. And I looked around this, this, this group of, uh, of people who were the, the people that fought outside the fence, who were the hard men, who were the, um, you know, what I would have termed at those days, a man's man. Yeah. And we're gathered around this small tableau of a, um, you may have seen these sort of things on television. They, the Americans do it very well. It's, it's a young guy's boots with a rifle upturned in his boots and on top of the rifle was his helmet. And um, at the foot of the boots, there was a photo of, of um, him and then the photo that he'd shown me of his wife and child. And apart from being very moved myself, in fact, you know, even when I think about it now and I talk about it, it still moves me. I looked around these, these hard asses around me and, and there were tears in their eyes and there were guys that were openly uh, weeping and other guys that were hugging them and, hands around his shoulders and I kind of went, well, that's, I've not seen this before. I've not seen this aspect of, of, you know, manhood where these guys don't have to put up the fronts. They don't have to hide behind the masks. They actually feel and are comfortable enough in their masculinity to, to, to show emotion and to show openly show it, not to, you know, be stoic in front of everybody and then go and hide somewhere and, and cry, which is what I used to do. Mm-hmm. So that was the that was the first realization. A couple of years later, Catherine's mum died, and I slipped into a really deep depression. I'd, I'd always had depression, um, and every six months or so, I'd, I'd you know have a bad episode where I'd kind of want to be in the dark for a couple of days. But this one was different. This one was it, it was a, a very deep one, and it got me to a point where I really considered taking myself out of the picture. Mm. Um, and I went to the doc and I said, look, um, I said, I've lost my sense of humour. Um, I, I need to do something because right now I'm literally just waiting to die type of thing. I initially got sent to a psychiatrist who asked me how I felt about stuff. And I said, well, I can't answer that question because I'd, I'd gotten so good at 
suppressing my emotions that I really didn't feel about anything. And at that stage of my life, I was actually feeling quite numb about things. So after about three sessions with them, I convinced them that I was fine and I moved on. Mm. It wasn't until a little while later when I actually went and saw a um, a counsellor who took a different approach and and she said, look, um, we're going to sort of try and work out why you feel about things, why you do, not about the feelings themselves. Uh, And then we're going to see how we can work with that to maybe give you some, some strategies to work with that. And that was, I guess, the the birth of where I am these days in terms of self-awareness, something that guys aren't taught. Mm. Guys, you know, we're taught throughout our lives to, you know, toughen up, don't cry, um, harden up, be resilient, you know, take one for the team, um, stand firm. You have to set the example for others, all those sorts of things. We're not actually taught to look into ourselves and understand our emotions and then learn how to, um, work with them in a positive way. So, so, so do you sorry. think? I was going to say, do you think you were ready to hear it then, when when she was working with you, or did she ask it in a different way, or get you to self reflect in a different way? What was the, the almost like the tipping point then? I think it's a combination of both, and I, I've really, I guess, looked into this with with the guys I work with now. You know, whether it's the young guys I talk to or or the older guys I, I talk with as well, is that when you when men are taught or men are asked to talk, men see that as somebody wants me to sit down in a chair and tell them how I feel about stuff. It's not about, um, as I learned with, uh, her name was Margaret Callahan, by the way. She called her my lifesaver. Yeah. She didn't want to just sit there and listen to me talk about my feelings. She wanted to learn or to help me learn about where the, what those feelings stem from. Right. So those going through that process with Margaret taught me, um, as I say, that emotional intelligence, the self-reflection, the self-awareness. So I understood my emotions, where they were coming from. And then I could do something concrete about it, whether that was a relaxation technique, whether that was getting on the motorcycle and going for a ride, or whether it was simply the ability to talk to somebody and explain to them that right now was not a good time to talk to me, um, that you know, I was feeling agitated or I was feeling anxious and I needed to just um, take a break, go and relax, and then we could come back to the topic later on. Yeah. Uh, A couple of years after that, when I went to an information evening about uh, for Men's Link, which is a a local charity down here in Canberra, um, I had been a mentor before for a couple of years to a, a young fellow when we were living in Hawaii. And... I found that rewarding from a point of view that Catherine and I unfortunately weren't able to have children. And I had a young fellow there who's nine years old, seven when we started, nine when uh, the program finished. And it was about translating some of my own experiences and what I'd learned into advice that I could give this young fella. All those sort of experiences were things that I could either let um, rot away inside me, or I could turn them to good, yeah, you know, to good use, which is which is the way that I've gone. So that started in the mentoring role. After a couple of years, I was asked to participate in one of the education programs that we have. So I did that, and then when I got close to my retiring, 
um, I had a chat with the CEO of the organization who um, was also a personal friend. And um, he asked whether I would be interested in coming on board as an employee and actually uh, developing another program for yeah. the young guys that we have as clients. And that, that sounded great. That was, you know, for me, a great opportunity to give back to the community. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd, um, I'd had a great career in the Navy and, and a couple of years in the public service after that, I'd worked to a point where I could afford not to work if I didn't want to. And it gave me the opportunity to give back, but give back in a way that had a positive outcome, a way to help young guys and men break out of this trap of, um, you know, toxic masculinity, if, if you want to call it that, or this hyper-masculinity that I'd, I'd kind of fallen into for so many years and then realised um, how damaging that could be. Mm. And what are the sort of things that you do with Men's Link now? I know you do a lot of work with schools and young guys. So what's the sort of work that you do with them? Men's Link does, has three elements to it. We, um, we provide mentors. So we have about 60 mentor matches going at any one time. And, and for the mentoring and the school programs, we, we support young guys from 10 years old right. to 18. So there's key, that key transition period you know, from child to man, basically. Yeah. Um, and then we also provide counselling um, out to 25 years old because um, the intent being if, if someone was in our program, reached 18, we weren't about to kick them to the curb because you're too old now. So we take that out to 25. Yeah. So what we do in the education program, we have a, a longstanding one called Science is Deadly, which started off as a program trying to address the high incidence of um, suicide amongst the cohort yeah. uh, that we're dealing with um, and encourage them to get help, basically, to, to talk to people. And what we've done over the years and certainly uh, in the last couple of years that that I've been run, uh, in charge of it is moving that to a, a more general, much broader message uh, of normalising this idea that we can talk to somebody, we don't have to harden up, we don't have to suck it up. You know, um, I use examples of with the young fellas of who has a push bike, yeah. a number of them put their hands up, you've had a flat tyre. Yes, I've had a flat tyre. Did you ride around forever on the flat tyre? Well, well, no, I fixed it. How did you fix it? Uh, well, my dad helped me or I asked a brother or I learned how to fix it when I was younger. Okay. Has anybody ever had a broken arm or a broken leg or a broke any broken bone? Uh, yep. How did you do it? Oh, playing footy. So what did you do? Did you crawl off the football field and fire, rip a branch off a tree and, you know, you splintered your broken limb and you went home and you wrapped it up and you kind of waited it for heal? Well, no, I went to the, I went to the doctor and the doctor helped me and, you know, that's how it got fixed. I said, well, why is it then? So we asked them why then is it that if mum and dad are fighting at home or I failed a, an important exam or my first relationship breaks down, that we suddenly d decide that we can't talk about those things, that if we do, then we're seen as weak or vulnerable or not able to handle our stuff. Yeah. So we have that discussion with them and we give them – some of the tools that I was given by Marg, you know, who, who's on your team? Who can you talk to? Who can you reach out to? And everybody branching from close family out to professionals in the same way that you might have a dad or a brother help you fix a flat tyre, but you've got to go to a doctor to get a broken limb set. 
I love that because it's just normalizing asking mm. for help, regardless of the cause of or need for asking for help. Exactly. And somehow yeah. we we tell people, it's, I don't think it's just a problem for young men, though I think it's probably more prevalent, but we seem to say that if there's anything wrong mentally, we feel that there's something wrong fundamentally with us. But if there's something wrong physically, we can get it fixed. Yep. It's an interesting societal problem there, I think. No, you're absolutely right, uh, right there, Beck. And, you know, that's trying to break that stigma, trying to normalise that behaviour is really the um, the purpose of that particular program now. Yeah, and I think um, we've talked before that what I do is how we bring the feminine into being valued in everybody, not just a woman thing, but in men and society as well. And I love that what you're doing here because we're talking about how do these boys show care and compassion to others and themselves? How do they yep. connect emotionally with themselves and show vulnerability? And I imagine there's a fair bit of um, like like collaboration or working together rather than it just being a single person that has to win if that, because that, that hyper-masculinity thing is it's all about you winning. Um, whereas this is about how do we help everyone together? Yes. Yeah. It's also then, you know, bringing out that, that care factor of, of how do I help uh, somebody else? Yeah. You know, it's not just about me. And, and our society is very much focused on the individual rather than, you know, the broader community. So how, how can I help somebody else who's not traveling well? And, and we illustrate all these points with um, our life stories. Mm. So this is not, I make it very clear to them. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a youth worker. I'm not a trained professional in this area. Um, I've lived it. So the approach that we take with this, and I'll, I'll introduce the other program in a sec is more the concept of the tribal elder, if you like. Yeah. You know, there are some cultures that are still very alive that have that. We've lost that in the West, the idea that our, our elders, male, female, doesn't matter, have, have a wealth of life experience that can actually be passed down to the young people to make their journey a little bit easier. Yeah. So this is the approach we take. With the other program that I developed for the organization is called pride p-r-i-d-e and and the word itself stands for possibilities resilience individuality destiny and effort yeah has as its logo a lion um so we look at the qualities of the lion which are strength courage and leadership but it also then means the collective you know a pride is um, a pride of lions so there's a number of messages that weave through that, and it's a small group program. I have um, about a maximum of 10 young guys go through that. It's based around eight one-hour sessions, and I take them through in the very initial stage thinking about what they stand for, what qualities do they admire in others, and how do they then adopt those qualities for themselves? What, what value do they want to stand for? I give them a choice just for the sake of the program, um, honour, honesty, courage, integrity, and loyalty. Now, any of your listeners who've ever been in the forces will recognise those as the Navy values, um, and th but they're good values. So I, I ask them to choose one and tell them that that's their value for the length of the course. So it gives them an anchor that I then use to take them through um, a couple of sessions on self-awareness, 
Why do they think and act the way that they do at the moment because of the stage of brain development that they're going through? Um, self-esteem. Why do they feel about things the way they do? How can they work on self-esteem, self-confidence to improve it? Because how they feel about themselves starts to direct how they react to the world around them and how they treat others. Yes. We talk about masculinity. We talk about relationships, you know, relationships with girls but also others. And that, again, is an opportunity for them to reflect on this ripple effect that we have on the world around us. Yeah. Whatever we do can have a direct or indirect effect or impact on people we may never meet. We then go through understanding their emotions, understanding anger. What, you know, what does anger look like, feel like, taste like to you? So that with that emotional intelligence, they can start doing something with it in the same way that Mark Callahan taught me. If I know, I'm sorry. I was going to say the, a lot of the rhetoric out there is that we only that, that 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 men and boys only can experience anger. That seems to be the only emotion um, allowed for them. In inverted commas, is that something that you find that you're helping them experience, understand what that is, but also see the other range of emotions? Is that something you find uh, in your work? Absolutely, and a lot of the um, a lot of the story that I've um, you know shared here, I share with them through that program. And I explained to them, look, guys, you know, I was or wanted to be the hard man. You know, I wanted to go to war. I wanted to be a bouncer. I wanted people to, if if not respect me, at least fear me, because if they did that, I'd be safe. Mm. I learned from a very young age that response as a man to anything was aggression and anger. Yeah. You fought for what was, you know, you fought for your rights, you fought for what was yours, this message of everything you did, you fought for. Um, and it's still prevalent today. We talk in in terms of competition. We talk in terms of winning and losing and fighting. And, you know, as much as one part of our society tells us um, we need to change, there's the other part of our society that celebrates, as we talked about before, all these hard skills, even yeah. to the point that, you know, as you pointed out um, earlier on, I, I'm both surprised and disappointed when I see women in the workforce and I saw women at sea on ships that had adopted male characteristics, had yeah. started talking like men, had started acting like men, even to the the um, body language that we use, you know, the puffing up of the chest and the the jaw sticking out, they'd adopted those kind of mannerisms and characteristics because they thought that was how they what they had to do to compete. Yeah, and we're told this too. Like the rhetoric for women in leadership is like take up more space, mm-hmm. you know, own uh, own the meeting, spread your arms, whatever it is. We're, that's rather than address the environmental issues and say, is this what's truly needed in the environment? We're saying to succeed in the current environment, this is what you need to do. Yep. Uh, and it's a shame because I think we miss out on the feminine energy from both men and women in this, when we just promote one way of leading. Oh, look, absolutely. And it was, um, it was something that again, I, I kind of, um, I love life because for me, it's a continuing education. You know, mm. I'm always learning. Um, when I was in the public service, I worked for a, a female boss um, who had four directors working to her, I was the only male. So our work meetings 
<laughs> were kind of interesting from my point of view because they were conducted a whole different way. You know, the the communication and the discussion and the the way the problems were worked through and dealt with were different to the way that I was used to. Yeah, I suppose very uh, different as well if you'd come from the service background because I imagine that, like you say, the hyper-masculinity comes through so much more. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that was, again, an opportunity to look at some of those softer skills, negotiation, and even the, you know, the tone of your voice and the tone of your body language, how to how you didn't have to take this aggressive stance to everything that actually sitting back, making everybody feel comfortable, providing the space where people felt comfortable to put their contribution forward, not yeah. not feel that, um, well, I can't say anything here because I won't be listened to or I'll be talked down. Um, that was a learning experience. So I take that into the, the course, so understanding the emotion. But then one of the key things that we do is communication. Mm. It Traditionally in our society, women have been seen as the communicators and it's been encouraged. Yeah. Men have been told not to. Yes. Don't talk. Be quiet. You know, don't share. And as I say, harden up. So the difference you see from the beginning to the end is this ability to firstly really identify emotions and be able to talk through them, particularly if they've if it's in a vulnerable situation. And what other yeah. things do you see between the beginning and end, like with, with the boys? There's the, this idea of respect goes through the golden rule, you know, treat others the way that you want to be treated. Their ability to, and as I say, it's, it's not a hundred percent hit rate, of course, because yes. you're, you're spending an hour a week with these young fellows and then they go back to their reality and, and some of their realities isn't that nice. Mm. Um, but they're becoming more confident. They're becoming uh, less prone to act impulsively. They're less prone to peer group pressure because we're building in them this idea that whoever you want to be is great. Mm. You don't need to jump on the end of or be, you know, manipulated on the end of a puppet master strings because of something somebody else wants you to do. You can actually stand firm and say, no, I'm going to be true to myself. Um, I don't need to get involved in that antisocial behaviour. I don't need to, you know, put myself down just to make somebody else be happy. So confidence, elements of self-esteem, but really for young fellows, their ability to better understand themselves and better communicate that, I think, are probably the key areas. Yeah. I love this um, this ability to help them get this strong inner core that is just them and that that they can hold on to that through the rest of their life. You know, that's something that if kids can take that away and they've, they've learned that at that age, I mean, that's a brilliant standing for the rest of their lives, isn't it? Oh, look, Becca, I really think, you know, based on my own experience, I spent most of my life wanting to be accepted by others and doing whatever it needed to do to get that acceptance. It wasn't until I actually learned to like myself, to respect myself, that um, that became less of a feature of my life. Mm. Um, and I'm a hell of a lot happier for it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's an inner contentment almost, isn't it, that when we get that? Mm. 
And I'm, I'm curious. And in an ideal world, I know that when we don't live in an ideal world, but if you if you go if you think upwards a bit and you think, what could society do to make this better? Like, what improvements could we make in a thinking space in society? What sort of things would you be throwing out there? I think really the sort of programs that we that we have. Um, and I'm seeing a couple of little things recently that um, people are introducing stuff like this. Young people are, male, female, doesn't matter. Young people are influenced by the roles, the modelling of roles around them. Um, they learn from the world around them. We expect our young people to learn for themselves. We step away from them and we treat them as um you know, young individuals and young adults that will, will be able to find their own way. And I think the, the proof is clear that they can't. Mm. If they don't have adults, trusted adults around them, providing the role modelling, the positive role modelling that can help them navigate all these um, challenges of growing up, they're going to find it somewhere else. They're going to find it online. They're going to find it amongst peers. They're going to look anywhere they can for this modelling and to try and find this identity. So I think we could do a lot more in our education space to help people or help young people indeed find their way, find themselves. Mm. Um, we then need better role modelling from adults. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds simple, doesn't it? But when you have our political elite on television every night yelling at each other and degrading each other to score political points. Young people look at that and go, well, that's clearly the way that I, you know, I have to get on in life. Yeah. And so much of this mentality in, in the world right now about winning, scoring points, causing mm. drama, mm. Um, like the getting significance from the drama and emotion and things like that just feeds into this, um, lack of modeling doesn't it well it does because we're everything is about the drama mm. you know, it's about the contest we, we we talk in sporting analogies you know grab the ball and run with it win at all cost our media defaults to the crises and the um the tragedies and the the bad things that are going in the world it's it's very difficult for young people to find the positive messages so it becomes much closer to home where it's important for them to learn there is positivity out there and to get the skills to navigate the wider world in a more productive way. Yeah. And we yeah. all have a responsibility there. You know, the idea that you take your child to school and school's going to teach that to them is fallacious. I mean, it has to start at home. Yeah. It has to then be reinforced in school. Uh, and then again, reinforced by wider society, including, you know, the leadership at the national level that I say is all too often, um, so it's a bad example. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. And I also think that business as a whole can play a leadership role in society. And it doesn't always step forward as a whole to do that. And so if you had a, a I asked this of all my guests, um, a lot of the time, my guests aren't working directly in corporate or directly in business. But what their experience in life and their experience in the work that they do do, there's lots of lessons that can be taken over into business. So mm. if you had a lesson for business leaders around this, what do you think it would be? To 
adopt a social conscience that part of your business DNA is not only about the profit for the shareholder, but there's there's a social aspect to what you do. And that social aspect could be sponsoring programs that can be provided in schools for young people mm. that might be having, you know, maybe there's a, a building within your your real estate holdings that isn't being used. It could be turned into um, a centre where young people could go to, you know, to to learn some of these things. I think there's a lot more that um, the corporate life can do uh, beyond just the pure uh, pursuit of profits. Yeah, yeah. And if people want to know more about your program and, and what you do, you're based in Canberra. Mm-hmm. And so if, I know that you guys, you're not necessarily working in other states, but if people wanted to learn from you and, um, and, and adopt some of these uh, courses and learnings, what, yep. how, what's the best thing to do? So we, we do have a, a website. It's uh, menslink, that's M-E-N-S-L-I-N-K dot org dot A-U. Um, that's our, our main website. If you wanted to speak to me in particular, it's uh, michael at menslink.org.au. I'm always happy to talk to people about what we do. We have had in the past um, people ask us if we can, you know, deliver our programs nationally and that. Uh, to, to date, we've decided that we wanted to, become, um, you know, be experts in our field, in our area, and not have that diluted by getting too big too quickly. Um, but certainly the models, the way that we run our programs with templates, if you like, are something we're always happy to talk to with others uh, and share them. Everything that we do, uh, we provide free. Wonderful. We are, you know, we don't charge people for the programs. Uh, I don't charge people for the talks that I give because what we want to do is change the outcome for the young guys that we uh, that we interact with on a daily basis and hopefully make their lives happier and in turn the lives of the people that they interact with happier too. And they'll grow up to be the leaders of the future and if they have that strong confident self-esteem core and Mm -hmm. understand how they impact others I mean that's a brilliant start to being a leader. Absolutely absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being part of this. Uh, as I said, when we connected, I, I loved your story and then how you've turned that into helping the, the young boys uh, in this space and how that's going to make a ripple effect in society going forward. So I really appreciate you being on this. Thank you. Uh, Beck, look, uh, my thanks also for uh, giving me the opportunity to, uh, to spread the word, really. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Captivating Leadership Podcast with Rebecca Livesey. If you enjoyed this episode, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review as this helps us spread the message and keep the conversations going. If you'd like to find out more about Rebecca's work, go check out her website on AchieveLeadSucceed.com where you can sign up to receive her ebook on the five C's of feminine energy and a video of Rebecca talking about leadership and feminine energy. And we've also got a Facebook group where we talk about all things leadership and culture, particularly around masculine and feminine energy. And that's called Captivating Leadership. So you're very welcome to join us there too. See you soon. Mm -hmm.